Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. But now with any further ado, let's get to uh, the last of this series tonight. We close it down just before Tisha B'Av, not inappropriately, uh, titled Learning to Cope in Difficult Circumstances, Rabbis and Authors, Mechabrim, uh, as we call them in Hebrew, and the Institutionalized Censorship of Jewish Books. So we saw last time, in our last episode, that eventually, although things were going good, they crashed because in the 1553-54, um, for a variety of reasons, a perfect storm, as it were, remember the Maram of Padua and the bookseller and all that business, uh, they burned all the books in, in, in Italy, or close to them. Um, over the next couple years, first in Rome, then in Venice, and then in other places, and even uh, ultimately, as we saw, up north in Cremona, which had been like a little island of safety, eventually the church got around to that, uh, always led by former Jews. It's a key part of the story. It's interesting, the censorship, as you'll see, of Jewish books, and the work in Jewish books has always had a very pronounced um, Jewish partner, and I'm talking about renegade Jews, uh, the Mishumarev. The establishment of the Inquisition in the Papal States is a basic feature of the papacy <laughs> of, uh, who is it, Paul IV, meaning that it's not just that they go after Jewish books. I want to make this clear. If you know anything at all about world history, Italian history, you'll know, totally aside from the question of the Jewish books, and after all, that wasn't that big of a deal for the Catholic Church, because there are very few Jews when you start to tote them up, uh, although they do care about it, but there's also something called the Christians, and it's called the Renaissance, and it's called people writing new things, and it's called writing things that don't necessarily agree with the teachings of the church. We've all heard of Galileo, who lives a little bit later, so just think about that. And there's a lot of other people you probably never heard of, like Bruno and so forth. And uh, the church, therefore, uh, started to freak out, not about the Jews so much, although they did that too, but also about the general public, and if you had a, a, a pope like uh, Cardinal Carafa, like Paul IV, and a few of those later on, uh, they get very scared about this and they want to tighten up the ship, and they do so, and therefore they introduce an inquisition primarily for Gentiles into Italy, and plenty of books are burned in the 1550s and 1560s and afterwards in Rome, and in Italy in general. You understand? I'm interested, you're interested, in what happened to the Jewish books. That's why we're here tonight. But that's not the only story. The burning of books is a pronounced feature of uh, what happens um, in general. And for this, we have to understand that uh, the, the Christianity in general is going through a certain revolution. Um, maybe we can adjust this uh, so I can see it a little bit better over here. Is that possible? Yeah, I could just, because I just want to be able to see. We'll go for our first one. The 1500s, of course. Yeah, just a little bit that way. Yeah, thank you. Just, just a little bit. That's fine, that's fine. That won't hurt anybody else and it'll help me. But obviously, in 1520 or so, 1517, Martin Luther was the first one who started the Reformation, what they call Protestants, Protestants, right? The protesting against the church. We all know that, and that, that cracked the monopoly of the Catholic Church, which has been for a thousand years. I mean a monopoly on what's right, what's Christian. Uh, anybody disagreed 
with the official teachings of the church for a thousand years in the course of what we call the Middle Ages, it was burnt successfully. Uh, you notice the church was successful in, in suppressing what they regarded as heresy. The thing with Luther is they didn't get to burn him for a bunch of reasons. He got away with it. Therefore, the cat was out of the bag. You know, the, bar, the, the, the barn was open and nobody could close it again. And the church still doesn't like that today, but it happened. And so what I'm trying to say is that starting already in the 1500s, this has nothing to do with Jews. Uh, Luther and then other people following him started to say like this, but that's not the right way to do Christianity. This is the right way to do Christianity. And then there was a split. And from then on, Christianity has been split in Europe uh, between the Catholics and the Protestants. And although in the 1500s, 1600s, they fought what they call the wars of religion in which the church tried to suppress the Protestant movement, but it didn't happen, as we know. And the reason I'm mentioning that is this is going to you know, incidentally affect the Jews. Uh, we're always worried about the side effects having the Jews. This one's fighting this one, and meanwhile the Jew gets shot. You understand? Uh, this is what we're always worried about, the effect in, in, in Jewish history. And so in this particular case, what happens is that the Reformation bred the Counter-Reformation. You understand? When Luther attacked the church on many grounds, so some people say like this, just kill them and keep up our merry ways. Let's do like the Borgias. But others said like this, uh, first of all, we can't kill them. We're not going to strong enough to do that. Second of all, he's right on some things. And therefore, the way to counter him is to admit that he's right on some things, fix him up, reform the church, if you understand what I'm saying, in a Catholic way, not a Protestant way. Um, and then we'll be able to successfully counter them. It depends what kind of a historian you are. Protestant historians call this the Counter-Reformation. If you're a Catholic historian, you call it the Catholic Reformation. But the point of the matter is, it's bad for the Jews. And the reason is because starting from 1540s, the first pope or two at that time, Leo X was a Medici, Clement VII was a Medici, we understand La Dolce Vita, you know, they didn't want to go and mess with the good old Renaissance type of ways. And therefore, the life went on. And that was good for the Jews, as we saw, because the popes who have their mind on art and girls and things like that are not going to be the type that's going to burn the books. On the other hand, after that time, starting the 1540s, uh, the popes, the new popes come along and they say, we have to respond in some kind of a thoughtful way to what the Protestants are saying about us. We have to fix up the church. And so from then on, really, I mean, it takes, a, let's put it this way, by the time you get to the late 1500s, you no longer, believe it or not, you no longer have popes with girlfriends. It's interesting. They just tightened it up. Uh, they tried to also make more rigorous, and they did, uh, the priests and the nuns and a lot of other things in there. Uh, the, the bribery should be reduced significantly. You know, all kind of things like that. And the result is, you have a tighter and tougher church, which is not good for the Jews. You understand? Uh, the face of this uh, is uh, Loyola, uh, Ignatius Loyola, who was a Spaniard. So his enemies said he came from Jewish blood. It's possible. You never know with these things. Uh, anybody from Spain could very well have a Jewish great-great-grandfather. But the bottom line is, uh, he's a Spaniard, and he founds the Jesuits. And they are devoted to carrying out the Catholic or the Counter-Reformation. And their idea was Chazak. You understand? Carry forth the message of the church, super strong, super passionate, and they don't mind Messiah Snefesh. They don't mind dying for it and all the rest of it. And he made it like a military type of order. And you went in there, listen to what I'm saying, you went in there to join if you joined, knowing that it's a spiritual boot camp. That's what it is. And only the toughest can survive. And therefore, anybody who's even signing up is already going to be such a stark religious fanatic individual. And uh, groups like the Jesuits are formed in the context of the Catholic Reformation. 
Uh, they're quite amazing. If you look at the next map, a picture, you'll see a famous painting of a Japanese embassy that goes to one of the popes. The Jesuits almost came close to converting Japan and China. I mean, that's, that's how good they were. You see, if you know your history, imagine that in the 1500s. So it's like they, they're very sneaky. They're the ones who coined the phrase, the end justifies the means. Um, I always like it, therefore, that Loyola, who was the famous face and the founder of the Jesuits, that's the, <laughs> that's the ones who had, where all the Nerezro boys go. You know? <laughs> the, uh, let's put it this way. I know one Catholic saint who's turning over in the grave. Um, but anyway, uh, these guys were very uh, stark, as they say before, and, they were the, and not surprisingly, they were the sworn enemies of the Jews. Correct? Uh, the Jews are actually the people who rejected uh, Christianity. The Jews are the anomaly. The Jews are the ones whose entire culture is sort of like a, a blatant, if you, if you care to look into it, as a blatant rejection of Christianity and Christendom. The Jesuits will be, in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, uh, and, and afterwards even, the super enemies of the Jews. You understand? Whenever you find a pope or a local cardinal who says, eh, you know, leave him alone, oh, you know, he's more worried about his Olam Haza, the Jesuits will be there to say, like this, no, enforce the rules. If it's a ghetto, it's a ghetto. It's a yellow star, it's a yellow star. If it's the books have to be spread, the books have to be spread. They're always standing on the rules because they're very, um, you know, shomer. They're very strong in that regard. And therefore, it's going to be a real uh, problem for, for the Jews. As a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say the Jesuits are the ones who are always going to fan the flames in the Catholic countries uh, about the Jews, you know, burn the Jews and forget the books. So it's really tough um, if you're Jewish living in a Catholic country after the founding of the Counter-Reformation. It's kind of funny because you and I are used to the classic Western, uh, I don't want to say myth, but the classic Western narrative, which goes like this. Every century things get better and better and more enlightened. You know, the 1500s was better than the 1400s. The 1600s was better than the 1500s. The 1700s better, you know. And here we are today. That's the classic narrative. And there is some truth to that. I understand where it comes from, but it's primarily a Protestant one. Jews who lived in Catholic countries Ironically, the Middle Ages was a good day, were the good times. The 15th, 16th, 1700s, it got worse and worse. We were just in Italy, as I repeated several times, after Napoleon fell from power and the Pope was restored after 1815. It got really worse than ever, and that doesn't make any sense. The 1820s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, 50s, should be the time when enlightenment is starting to kick in some... No. <laughs> you understand? So when you're dealing with this kind of situation, you can't use the normal... A kind of narrative, and the Jesuits and groups like that, which are new orders that are founded in the context of the Counter-Reformation, are an equal part of that kind of a story. Now, the official uh, face of the Counter-Reformation was called the Council of Trent. Uh, here's the Pope that set it up. We met with him before. Uh, that's the last one we talked about last week, Pius IV. Uh, he wasn't so bad uh, to the Jews. He wasn't. Uh, he's not the one who uh, caused most of the trouble. But uh, he was stark in the Counter-Reformation, and uh, therefore uh, he is the one who is pushing the church to set up a council to tighten up the rules. Let me uh, make myself a little clearer, if, if, if I have it. There have been all kinds of rules in the, on the, on the Catholic law books back from the 500s. The thing is, who keeps them all? I'm talking about the Jewish parts. You know, this pope here in the 600s said this, and that pope there in the 800s said that. Uh, the Jews always relied upon the fact that uh, memory is short, you can't remember everything, uh, who here in this room knows all the rules about anything, and uh, therefore, you know, 
whatever they say about the Jews having to dress this way, that way, as time went on, it kind of fell into desuetude. You know, it's true that they said a building can't be this and this high, but as time went on, you know, Shmerel, Beryl, they know the priest and all the rest of it. And then, uh, now comes a reassertion. Let's see the rules, let's codify them, let's apply them, and let's take them very seriously. That's the, that's the issue. The Jews from 1559 to 1563, which was uh, this pope, I know it's going to get confusing to you, but I hope it doesn't. You had good pope, bad pope, good pope, bad pope, and all the rest of it. And the Jews, it mattered a lot, obviously, if you're living there. Um, the bad one was Paul IV. The next one came after him was Pius IV. He was not so bad, and as a result, uh, relatively speaking, when I say not so bad, the Jews sent delegations constantly to the Council of Trent. These are official Jewish delegations. Um, you have to understand, Italy, the Judaism was very organized. They had Cahillas, and the Cahillas themselves used to get together and agreed upon times for um, matters of common concern. So the Jews would send, I mean, they, they had, um, what shall I say, uh, conventions, if you wish, of Jewish representatives, elected Jewish representatives from Rome, from Bologna, from Venice, from Padua, and all that kind of thing, and many other places, and they would come together. We have these records of Takonos and things like that that they did, and Fiori, and Fano, and in Milan, and this place and the other, for those who are interested in that, and they would do matters of common concern. Well, in the 1500s and 1550s, the fate of Jewish books is a major matter of common concern, because where are we without the books? As I've been talking about this whole uh, series. And so they appointed official Stadlanim, that means people who are supposed to go and lobby, uh, to the Council of Trent. So it's just very interesting to understand that when you look at this very famous thing, maybe you've never heard about it, it's very famous in history, the Council of Trent, which reorganized Catholicism and reorganized it pretty tightly and pretty successfully, I would say that the Catholic Church was the same from the 1550s, from the time of the Council of Trent, down till recently, down to the 1960s. Understand? When Pope John the Twenty Third pulled the plug and they 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 reorganized themselves and believe me the real strong Catholics read Pat Buchanan or something like that, he said oh we made a terrible mistake they should keep up the Council of Trent you understand you know the Latin Mass and all that kind of business don't don't yield at all look 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 how the Catholic Church is falling apart and bleeding people out all the time and nobody listens to the rules anymore and all that that's not the way it was when we were growing up you know stack and I understand where they're coming from so uh, that same place had a hotel, and the hotel was a, a Jewish representatives who were paid by the other Jewish communities, and there to be the permanent lobbyists to try to ameliorate any kind of negative decrees and move, whenever possible, to try to uh, put in positive decrees. The Stadlan, the intercessor, as they called it, is a famous figure in Jewish history, and their slogan was always like this. Uh, as the Gemara says, Kol Hasharm, Afal Pisha, Kol Hasharm, Ninalu, Shari, the most lone in Maybe you've heard that word or not, which means... Oh, you say in Rosh Hashanah time, all the gates of heaven are closed, but the gates of tears are never closed. You know, say, Shari Demos Loninolu. The gates of tears, and you know, you, and we all understand what that means. That's not what the Shtadlani meant. They said all the gates are closed, and Shtari Demos Loninolu. Money always, always works. You understand? So when you're talking about Jewish lobbying, it's, it's paying off. But that's what everybody did. And I got news for you. Whether you like it or not, that's what everybody does today. What the heck is a lobbyist in Washington or Annapolis or, 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 or Baltimore, Maryland, if not that? They don't pass their law because they like their face. Uh, they don't do it because they listen to the arguments. <laughs> you know, understand? They do it because they're paid off in one form or another. So the Shtari Demos, the fate, the goal of the Shtadlanim was um, to have the fate of the Talmud um, decided by the Pope. Remember, Paul Pius IV was a Medici and not by the Council of Trent. You understand? They wanted this guy to be in charge 
because they felt him they could bribe more successfully. In other words, it, it'll take. Abraham Lincoln's famous definition of an honest politician is, you buy him, he stays bought. Understand? <laughs> so um, it kind of worked. Uh, remember, they were burning books like crazy. Uh, there were whole towns in which all this farm were, were, were just uh, uh, shredded. And they didn't stop at Gemara's because, you know, they can't read Hebrew one or the other. Get it? To them, everything is a Hebrew book. Uh, I, myself, was in Soviet Russia uh, after we got married. We went to a, that's not a honeymoon I recommend. But anyway, we went to Russia. And uh, they pulled, I had with this book, and now they pull all these things. And they couldn't tell the difference between a sitter and a this and a that and the other. They just write down as a Hebrew book. So that's exactly what happened that time. So they're burning books right and left. And so the Shtadlanim are going to say like this. Let the Pope be the one who decides what the final ruling is, and they succeeded in that, and Pius IV kind of splits the difference. And what he said was, by the time all the back and forth was over with, and all the money was deposited where it needed to be deposited, so he said the Talmud may be published, but only if the word Talmud is omitted. You see? Now I'm going to tell you something, that's a very Medici kind of thing. It's a very Italian kind of business, you understand? In other words... The Jewish guy said, like can you work with me? <laughs> can we work this out? And he can't, what I'm trying to say is like this, the Pope was actually more sympathetic to the Jews than the rest of the Catholics were. He himself cannot go too far. You understand what I'm saying? You know, then the Council of Trent, the others will say, oh, the Pope is the higher link of the Jews, and that will undo him. So he has to play ball. And everybody understands this, if you're living in the crazy Renaissance Italy of that time. And so they can publish books, and they do publish books called Shas. That's where it comes from. Right? That's why they decided to call it Shas. Or Gemara. That's why they call it Gemara, not Talmud. Uh, nobody said I use the word Talmud. You might look at me like, what's, uh, what's that all about? You know, everybody talks about the Gemara. You see? Or they might use uh, you know, uh, other terminology, halachos. You see? And the idea is like this. Everybody, this, this is a very Catholic, bureaucratic kind of thing. The letter of the law is observed. Right? The, the rules are formally admitted to. And you know, <laughs> right. Um, that's what happens. When the Pope, that was the Pope's, uh, you know, sort of compromise, as it were. And, um, and the result was that after that, at least until the next Pope came along, as, as we'll see in our story, after that, um, Jewish books begin to be published again by Gentiles, as last time, you know, according to the rules. I don't think any rabbis want to interfere with that again after the fiasco that we spoke about last week. And, uh, you know, it's an income for the state, and, and, as I said before. And uh, you don't call it uh, Gomorrah. See, you call it other things. Now, um, there's a lot to this, and I'm going to explain it as I go along. It's just very interesting to note, however, that Jews everywhere were scared to death of what's happening in Italy. They knew that's the headquarters of the Catholic Church. They knew the Renaissance princes come and go, and different policies come and go. And there's a big demand in the 1500s for Hebrew books. You understand? Uh, from a strictly economic point of view, and everything I'm talking about is a violation of strict economics. Because life is not all about economics. If it was, many of you would not be where you were, and you wouldn't be you know, paying the tuitions you are, and all that sort of thing. Um, it's not all about economics. So it's also about faith and, and, and feelings and things of that nature. But from the strictly point of economics, Italy could have made a fortune because there's a lot of Jews out there in the Gansavelt, true? And everybody knew that the Italian books are superior quality, as I explained two weeks ago. And everybody knew that the paper and the ink and all the red is, be is better, and so is the work of art. So you think of all the yeshivas in Poland and in the Turkey and in all these kind of places, of which there were plenty in the 16th century, 
uh, they could have made a fortune, but that's not the way they wanted to go. So economics being what it is, you find that the Talmud starts to be published for the first time in, in Lublin, in Poland, in 1559. Now, Poland's a Catholic country, but it's a different type of Catholic country. Interesting. I don't expect people to remember what we spoke about a couple years ago, but you may, and that is that Poland in the 1500s was uh, very much a country where part is Catholic, part is Protestant, and there's a little bit of Jeffersonianism in which they don't want the state to interfere too much in the culture and all that stuff. And the Jews are able to take advantage of it. And I can just tell you in general, uh, the censorship in Poland, in the good old kingdom of Poland that went down the tubes in the late 1700s, it was minimal censorship, and therefore very significant farm were published in Poland uh, in the 16 and 1700s. The only thing that ever held it back was the money end. And uh, I won't say that it was the highest quality, uh, but you don't need high quality, right? You know, Gamar is a Gamar, so to speak. It didn't have the best paper, all the rest of it. But starting in 1559 and afterwards, you begin to get significant uh, Jewish publishing outside of Italy, and, and particularly in Poland. I'll just throw this as, as an aside. The first one that was published was full of mistakes, because somebody heard about the junk in Italy, he figured, oh, copper rind, and therefore they just put together... Uh, it's not, there's no, well, like today, you know what I mean, you do a photocopy or anything like that, and so you had to put the more from, from the beginning. They tried to save money. This is always the bane of Sfarim that are published down the ages. They say, Smoli Einayim, which means they all said, you know, I in this, or uh, they use Russia Tavis, you know, uh, abbreviations, and it's sometimes become indecipherable uh, for the reader. Uh, this has always been a bane of existence for Jewish pu- uh, publishers and for authors and things of this nature. And the one in Poland that they first published was terrible and full of mistakes. And the biggest rabbi in Poland in the second half of the 1500s, the Marshal, I'm sure many have heard of him, Shlomo Luria, a big Russian sheep, but not a little one. And he spent years, because uh, he was so upset by this, spent years of his time going through all the mistakes and fixing them strictly from um, brains. In other words, not by crossing manuscripts and things, but just by logic. You can be sure he sweated bullets before he changed anything. And most of his uh, corrections were put into later editions of the Gemara, and they were actually confirmed by uh, modern manuscripts. But anyway, uh, we are talking about the golden age in, of Talmud in Poland. I mean, I spoke about a couple years ago, I'm sure you remember this, when there were yeshivas galore and all that sort of thing going on. And that means there's an insatiable demand for Jewish books. Right? I mean, the public will pay for it. And there are a lot of people that want it. And you know how it goes. Once a lot of people want it, even those who don't know how to learn also, also want to have a Gemara in the house. That you find nowadays as well. So that means, economically speaking, there's a big push, and don't be surprised about it. A few years later, in the early 1560s, while all this is going on in Italy, the Talmud starts to be published for the first time in Salonika, which is going to be the main headquarters of the Sephardic culture that is relocated to the Turkish Empire. Because Salonika was the, the whole, by this time, a third of Europe is owned by Turkey. Right? I mean, the Turks had Budapest. It was Buddha and then Ofen and then Pest. I mean, that's how far they were. They were almost up to Vienna. So at that time, Turkey was superpower. And uh, therefore, the whole Balkans and everything was in there. And Salonika was a big Jewish town. It remained so for many years. And a big center of Jewish culture. And so you can't rely on Italy. The popes are coming and going and burning and not burning. All the rest of them start burning in here. Again, if you take a look, I'm not going to do a show and tell, although I could here. It's much inferior quality. But that's, uh, that's how economics works. Um, Salonika was uh, the headquarters of the big Portuguese immigration. You know, uh, I keep talking about inquisitions and all the rest of it. Uh, Spain had inquisitions in the late 1400s. 
Portugal did not, have, did not have an Inquisition until 1536. And the Jews, the Moranos in Portugal, were lobbying like crazy for years and years, don't bring an Inquisition. Have a policy of don't ask, don't tell. Because naturally, they tried to secretly practice Judaism. And as long as there's no Inquisition, nobody's really going to get you. Uh, because nobody's looking what you do in your house on Friday night, so it's, it's nobody's business. Once you have an Inquisition, it's a totally different story. And anything you do at all that might be Jewish, you burn at the stake. And they take all your money and all the rest of it. And once they introduce in 1536 an Inquisition, all these Gracia Mendes types leave the country and run away because uh, they have what to hide. And, uh, you know, we spoke about it at least as she goes up north, eventually ends up in Turkey, but uh, lots of these Portuguese Jews go east and go to Salonika. It's a very interesting story. The, the, the community takes off like crazy. So it's not surprising that they would start to have a significant publication center of Jewish books. They bring the type fonts from Portugal. It's, it's interesting. You know, the, the old Hebrew books that were published in Ferdinand and Isabella's time are now republished in, um, in, in Salonika. The Jews in Salonika build up like crazy a textile trade. Uh, I know we're all shocked to hear the Jews are in the textile business, but that's why they dominate over there. And it's really interesting if you look at the, uh, look at this. You have the, the famous Turkish soldiers, the Janissaries. These are the elite uh, Turkish guards. Believe me, what's that guy in Turkey today? Uh, uh, Erdogan. He, they dream of this stuff because these are the guys that conquered Budapest, Vienna, and all the half the world. The Janissaries. Uh, There's a million dollar costume. In other words, what's it take to put? It's just very expensive uniforms. True. Very colorful and this and that and the other. Jews. It's, <laughs> the Jews of Salonika have the contract that they provide all the uniforms from the Janissaries. You understand? So, what else is new? So. Uh, this was a big trade once upon a time, especially in the 16th century. It's Suleiman the Magnificent is the Sultan of Turkey, and they're conquering like crazy, and Turkey's in a huge economic expansion, and so they can afford to publish swarm. That's what it is. And therefore, Salonika was the big Malcolm Toro. Uh, I would say it's the second biggest, or may, and I might be wrong, you know, it might be the biggest Malcolm Toro in the world at that time, and it wasn't even a Jewish community a few years ago. So it's really kind of interesting what's going on at that time. Here's the Emperor Suleiman. And what's really intriguing about him is they think his mother was Jewish, right? Now, what's the, wait a minute, there's 10,000 slave girls in the harem, okay? We're talking about the Turkish Empire, after all, you know? Uh, here's his mother, by the way, okay? She looked Jewish? I don't know. They, uh, <laughs> yeah, now come see, come saw. Anyway, the, uh, uh, but Suleiman, uh, Shlomo, as we would say, Suleiman is uh, very good for the Jews, you understand? You remember last week I showed you that thing with Gracia Mendez? She was going to bring to Suleiman. He, he was no dummy. And from a pure Turkish economic national interest, the, his policy was the more Jews, the better. Uh, you know him as the guy that built the wall around the old city of Jerusalem. Correct? You go there today in Yerushalayim, it's not from the old days. It's only from the 1500s. It's from Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, and it's not surprising that they would build a wall around Yerushalayim, keep out the robbers. Minimal security, basic security at that time. Uh, it's a, strong, a fairly strong wall. But everybody knows the books are not as good as the Italian stuff. They're all knockoffs. Okay? They're all knockoffs. Uh, you know, it's like buying an imitation dress or something like that. Not that I know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'm sure you do. Now, um, the next pope, we're back to the uh, Hilaria types. Okay? His pies, the fifth, he was bad news. I mean, really bad news. Uh, he had plans to burn down the Jewish ghetto with the Jews in it. Uh, I'm serious. He expels the Jews from the Papal States, except from Roman Ancona. 
So, for example, there were significant Jewish communities all throughout central Italy. I'll give an example, Bologna, places like that, right? Uh, I think you've heard of that. Uh, important Jewish communities, thriving Jewish community. You know who was living at that time in Bologna? You want to name the Sforno, for example. And the Sforno. Uh, Sforno is the name of a town in Italy. So they were originally from Sforno. Uh, it's not the Sipurno. The Anyway, the uh, point is that um, the Pope says that there were a couple of Jews who owed him money and they ran away to Ferrara. Therefore, it's a Jewish plot against me. Of course, it's a lie. He knows that. And therefore, he's kicking all the Jews out um, from the whole papal states, leave tomorrow. And uh, he goes after the Jews of Bologna, Badafka, and accuses them of all kinds of crimes. And he puts them on the rack, uh, you know, the torture rack. It's very famous, Rabbi Hanano, something or other, was tortured by him. And as he's being tortured, before he, say, he says, you may get me under torture to say all kinds of things, especially rejecting Judaism. I want, especially rejecting Judaism. I want to say right now that I renounce all this is only for the torture. You understand? Um, church doesn't care about that. The Jewish religion, some of us were in Verona, we talked about this. Jewish religion, Jewish law, very interesting uh, as far as the law codes go. It's unique in the Middle Ages and in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 1800s, early 1800s. It's unique in a number of respects. One of the respects it's unique in is no torture. It's interesting. Now, I don't know if it's because of humanity or anything like that, but there's no torture. The real reason is the following. What do you have legal... Do you understand what I'm saying? When you arrested somebody long ago in Italy, in Germany, in France, in Russia, obviously in Turkey and places like that, anywhere, anywhere. So the attorney general or the state's attorney or whatever that's called over there has a certain amount of what they call Raglaim Ladover. No, there's a certain amount of, of basic evidence, what we would call today grand jury type of stuff, that there's enough out there, in his opinion, to arrest you. Once they arrest you, they don't want to say we got the wrong person. And so what they really want from you is a confession. But what if you don't want to confess? Well, like the Rambam said long ago, uh, really, you want to confess. It's the Yitzhahara that's preventing you from confessing. Therefore, we'll torture it out of you, and therefore, you'll say what you really think. And as, as England, I mean, everywhere, all the laws were like this. And, uh, and that's why you always got confessions. You see, to do whatever it needs to do. They got pretty good at it in Europe, as you can imagine. In Turkey, you, can, you can't imagine. But in Europe, maybe you can imagine. And uh, there's always a confession. Surprise, surprise. There's always a confession. The Jewish law, if you anything about the Talmudic law, uh, an, a, a, a confession is not admissible in court. Ain't on a mason out to Russia. You understand? Jewish law, if a person says that legally, I'm talking from the legal point of view. If you say, I did it, I killed somebody, that's not admissible evidence. You need two witnesses outside and all that sort of thing. So therefore, there's no point in applying torture uh, because... The confession is not going to help. You get it? I mention this all because there was a famous book that came out in the early 1600s from Fernando Cardozo. We were at his show in Verona uh, called Los Excellencias de los Judeos, The Excellencies of the Jews. The guy wrote a book called Excellencies de los Españoles, the, ex the Excellencies of the Spanish, that the Spanish are obviously the greatest people in the world. And this guy wrote a book that the Jews are. And, one of his art and he had been the doctor of the King of Spain. And he gave it up and ran away one day no, he was at the top of his career. You know what that means. If one of your patients is the king of Spain, who are your other patients? This is the top money. And he gave it all up and ran away to Italy and ended up being a doctor in a schnooky little uh, ghetto in Verona just so he could be a Jew. And it's interesting. I mean, he gave up a lot. And, um, and he wrote a book. And in the book he says, oh, you're making fun of us? What about this? What about that? What about, what about the fact 
that all you guys are always making fun of the Talmud and the Jewish laws, but you know yourselves that the confessions that you elicit through torture are baloney. I mean, you know, people aren't stupid. You know that the only reason the person is doing it is because of being tortured, and once you torture somebody, they'll say whatever you want. But you do it anyway, don't you? So you have the nerve to accuse our uh, religious laws of being corrupt or backwards? Ha, huh, you know. Now, um, it's just interesting to know all that. The point is that um, this pope was pretty bad. Uh, and as long as he was there, wherever they find the Gemara, they'll burn it, and whatever the other pope said, you know, it goes back to that. He succeeded by the next pope, Gregory, right? Gregory IX. Is that him? Yeah. He's the guy who made our calendar. 13th, I meant. He's, he's, he, uh, he's the one who made our calendar. <coughs> Excuse me, the ninth was the guy who burned the Morris in the first speech. Anyway, he was not as bad, but he was pretty bad. Um, it's the Counter-Reformation reality. Remember that. It's a new world. It's the counter Even the not-so-bad popes are pretty bad because the system is now in place and the zeal for the enforcement of the laws was out there and ever-present. It's just a new day. They have a tough regime. You have the Jesuits, you have this group, you have that group out there, and they're taking this stuff real seriously. They're throwing the Jews in these ghettos. They're reducing the size of the ghettos. They're putting all kind of uh, extra xeris uh, and things on the Jews. It is what it is. Now, Gregory, uh, he did a few things favorable to the Jews, but he also ordered all the copies of the Talmud to be handed over to the Inquisition. And we know what that means. Now, here's something very interesting. When that happened, the Jews literally once again freaked out. They uh, got together in a convention, and they sent a, lo- a lobbyist, Avtalian of Modena, uh, an uncle, I think, of Leon of Modena, and Avtalian uh, Modena, who was a great Talmud Chacham, who was also a PhD from the University of, of Padua, and uh, he came to give a, a famous several-hour-long speech in Latin, uh, to, in brilliant speech, they say, uh, defending the Talmud, which blew everybody away and got the order canceled. It's a rare case where by argumentation, it's a very rare, by argumentation, you can make an impression. Now I'm sure he also brought money, but nevertheless, it's, it's because that's how it goes. But nevertheless, it's quite something, and it's, it's best I can make out, he uh, is very thoughtful. You have to understand, we're dealing with Renaissance Italy, rhetoric is one of the great arts, according to some of the greatest. Rhetoric is public speaking in the old-fashioned Latin Cicero way. Um, rhetoric is not taught in schools anymore, except some Catholic schools, but it was one of the, the part of the Aristotelian curriculum, and it ought to be taught, you know. It's, best, it's what we call today English comp, which is a pale imitation of that. But there's all the difference in the world. Is there not, my friends, between those who can use the English language correctly and those who cannot? And uh, if you can do that in Latin, it's really impressive. And therefore, to be able to give an oration and a, and a persuasive one in pure Latin was considered a very chashu thing. Not many people were able to do that. Uh, the Ramchal later on, uh, the famous Mushkam Sato, has a book on uh, uh, on uh, rhetoric, uh, Sefer Amalitza, among his other books, uh, because you can't understand Gemara and things like this, and, the, and, and Tanakh, unless you understand the principles of rhetoric, because after all, among other things, the holy Jewish books, among other things, are rhetorical documents. They're documents trying to make a point and influence the readers through language. Basically, Avtalia and the Modena, in this tour of force, made the Rambam's famous argument in the Hakdom Perichelik, the intro of Perichelik, concerning the wisdom of Chazal and the resulting necessity to, uh, what shall I say, parse these uh, objectionable uh, passages. The Rambam long ago, in defending the Agadata in the uh, 12th century, uh, said, said something very interesting. And that is, 
You might look in the Gemara or some places like a Medrash and see some crazy story. It certainly seems crazy, right? The moon ran off with a spoon and jumped over whatever. And it's, you know, one plus one is three. It's, so you say, what, what, what's going on over here? The Rambam's point, he says, is like this. Look at the person saying it. But then look at what else he says. And look at the totality of what is recorded in his name and see if you're dealing with a nut or a smart guy. So if Rabbi Kiva said the moon ran off with... Rabbi Kiva said one plus one is three. So look elsewhere and you see he was educated, he was smart, he said many statements that reveal great wisdom and all the rest of it. So then he knows that one plus one is two. So then what does he mean by one plus one is three? Ah, now you're asking the right question. You're approaching an entirely different way. If Albert Einstein said one plus one is three, then you say, yes, he knows the arithmetic. You know, if you meet somebody in the street, right, especially with a Baltimore high school education, they might think one plus one is really three. But if you meet, <laughs> but if you meet Einstein, he said one plus one is three, you say, yes, what did he mean by that? It must be a tremendous chokhmah. That's a different story. So when you see tales in the Agoro, whether in the Gemara or in the Medrash, a place like that, and they seem wild, and you see it's Rabbi Kiva saying it, Rabbi Gamliel, or Abai, or Rabbi, whoever it is, then you say this, what do we know about these people? Are they crazy, or are they smart? Are they a superficial and shallow, or the opposite? And if they are indeed deep thinkers, as reflected in the other statements that you see over there, then you have to ask yourself, what are they doing by using strange language, it must be rhetorical, right? It must be to hammer home a point. They're using language and vivid um, parables and things like this to make a point. Oh, that's a different story. You see? So Talion uh, de Modena, in his uh, great speech in, in the Vatican, in front of the College of Cardinals and the Pope, see, hammers on these points to see you're against the Talmud, all the rest of it. Think of these people. are. They're not so stupid. Re re read what they say. And he quoted passages and things like that. And therefore, if you find passages that seem objectionable to you, think twice. And think, think three times. Nobody ever approached them in that way. It's interesting. Uh, secondly, he also made another argument, uh, more fascinating, um, which really hit home with the listeners, as, as it ought to have. And basically, it goes like this. You want to deprive the Jews of their books. Your hope is going to be as follows. Once they don't have their books, they won't be Jews anymore, and they'll become Christians. So they'll switch from being from Jews to from Christians. Well, that's possible. Here's another possibility, and I would argue more likely possibility. They'll become totally irreligious, they'll become atheists, become free thinkers, skeptics, and then what they do and do is really going to undermine your whole society, because as long as they're arguing out of totally Jewish context, nobody's interested in what the Jews say in their intellectual as well as physical ghetto, if they Jewish. But if they argue from a strictly secular point of view, they'll undermine the foundations of whole society, and then where will you be? In other words, it's not in your self-interest to undermine the Jewish religion. If you had any brains, you'd be bankrolling the yeshiva in Padua, and like the Tsar of Russia, if he had any brains, would be bankrolling the Volozhin yeshiva, otherwise he wouldn't create a bunch of Jewish revolutionaries who shot him in the end and his family in a cellar. You understand? No, no, this is a very interesting argument. Let me say, it wasn't that long after this that the first secularist a principled secularist arrives, secularist, arrives, arises in Europe, I'm talking about Spinoza, who is exactly a deracinated Jew, also a deracinated Christian, he's from Murano back, her parents ran away from Portugal, ends up in Amsterdam, he doesn't fight, quite fit into the Judaism in Amsterdam, he doesn't like that, he also doesn't really like the Christianity over there, and therefore, even though he clothes his words in 
uh, euphemisms, all the rest of it, but intelligent people were able to see what's really going on, in which he said the whole thing is a bunch of baloney, all the religion, and that opens a can of worms, which the Catholic Church is not able to stop, and it launches the process, which, as we all know, goes on down to the present day, in which all secularism undermines religion. If there's any religion undermines, it's Catholicism, and the Church today, as a result of that, is a pale imitation and an empty shell of what it once was. Not because the Jews did it, but here's this guy of Talia Manina back in the 1560s, 1570s, saying to the Jewish, think twice before you decide to burn the Jewish books. Might not be good for you. You understand? This was based on something. Again, we spoke a couple years ago, in Spain, after 1391, when they had these huge pogroms which broke out spontaneously, and about half the Jews, let's say 100,000, I don't know, Jews were forcibly converted to Christianity uh, in the 1391 period, then what? The Catholic Church had not organized these pogroms, they were spontaneous. And so all these Jews had been converted, but then they went home. And when they go home, so you've got to still be a Catholic, but what do you tell your children? I'm going to church, but it's a bunch of baloney. The kid goes to the church and says, what is he here? Judaism is a bunch of baloney. So what does he conclude? Elu <laughs> v'elu. All religion is a bunch of baloney. I'll just be an atheist. That was even worse on the Catholic hierarchy of value. That's not what they planned on. You understand what I'm saying? You have to always think very carefully before you establish a policy because it might blow up in your face. This has happened in America a couple times where they, they, you know, we got this far, but then we didn't know that it would lead to this. I'll give you one example, Iraq. But there are many. So uh, anyway, there was, a, as I say, a prescient argument. And uh, Jews, indeed, once the books were burned or deprecated and once the Jews began to lose any connection with their books, went for atheism, for secularism. As we all know, they played an extremely, and still do play, an extremely prominent role in modern secularism over the last couple hundred years and have contributed no small part to the deconstruction of religion, and particularly Christianity. It is what it is. Now, um, anyway, nothing definite was settled as a result of this argument. It depends on the whim of this pope or that pope, and the Jesuits and their allies are always agitating for destruction. The next pope, I think it's the last one we'll deal with today, you know, I got you poked out. He says this is Pope... Pope Sixtus, the fifth, right? These are, well, you're going to have a test and you better know all your popes in order. You know, it says, um, who was a better? Okay, once again, he's an interesting guy. He was a peasant to begin with. The pope was interesting. Uh, the Jews, realizing that they got a better pope on their hands, because you understand, as soon as a new guy becomes a pope, the Jews already start using the network and the grapevine in the community. So what kind of a guy is it? So does, he have a, does he have a Jewish friend? Does he have a doctor who's Jewish? Does he have a girlfriend who's Jewish? You know, that, that's how they operate. Does the girl, no! Does his, does his sister have a Jewish hairdresser? This is how the, rule, the game had to be played long ago. You know, If that guy's got all the power and you're in his hands, you have to feel, look for something. Right? I mean, that's what you have to do. So you believe me, if his, if his uncle has a Jewish girlfriend or his aunt has a Jewish hairdresser or something like that, it travels very fast, and uh, need I say the story of Queen Esther? That's, that's what that was. So anyway, um, the Jews realized they could just make a full court lobbying effort to get a formal hetter from the Vatican to publish the Talmud and the others for him, subject to a formal censorship process. They say, let's settle this thing back and forth, one pope, another pope. Can't we come out to some final you know, modus vivendi, as they say over here? And they succeed. On the 6th and the 5th, they succeed, and the Catholic Church fixes on a definite policy, uh, a formal policy of allowing 
the publication of Jewish books, even by Jews, it's quite remarkable, even by Jews, but always subject to censorship and approval. So wherever you're going to have a Jewish book press, Hebrew press, anywhere in a Catholic country, from then on, down to the 1800s, that's a long time, it's, it's a, 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 a pushet. It's, it's just taken for granted that anybody who wants to write a safer, and there are plenty of Jews who are literate and they're going to write a lot of books, it's got to get uh, approved by the local nearest Catholic censorship body. You understand? What I'm, what I'm trying to say is the Council of Trent sets up actual uh, commissions in every place where there's a Jewish press, uh, whether in Italy or in uh, Bohemia or in Germany or wherever, except in Poland, but everywhere else, there's a formal process. The Jews have to pay for it. That's part of the deal. Catholic Church says, we'll appoint people, and their job is to censor the Jewish books. You pay their salary. The Jews have no choice. Right? In the world I'm talking about, the Jews don't have a choice. You, see, you say it's not fair. Well, fair is not the issue over here. The Jews are just trying to get their basic, want to get a sitter published, want to get a chumash published, want to get a gemara published, all the rest of it. So we do whatever we have to do. It's just another expense, another business expense. It is what it is. And so the result is that a formal bureaucratic censorship apparatus, quite remarkable in nature, is set up throughout Europe and remains there until the modern era. The problem with censorship, however, is obvious. Which guy understands rabbinic Hebrew or Aramaic? <laughs> How can they censor something? You can't read it. Right? Mind you, there may be somebody, like a Reuchlin or somebody, who reads Hebrew. You know what that means. He read a Hebrew grammar book. They, they, they used to, the Christians who went to Hebrew did it like the way you and I or somebody else studies Latin or Greek. You get a, Latin, uh, a Hebrew book, you start to decline your nouns and verbs, God help us, kal, nifal, pil, puf, espal, and all that. You're not going to understand the Gemara from this, and you're also not even going to understand Ramban. You understand? You're not going to understand rabbinic Hebrew, which breaks the rules of dicta, God help us all the time, which uses idioms of its own, which is an elite Mandarin kind of language, which always is referring to, like you're supposed to know what all the references mean, which is the hallmark of every elite Mandarin language. You understand? Talk to anyone with a classical education, uh, everything is a reference to some. This reminds me of what Zeus said to Hera, and, that, and you're supposed to know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Or if I was dealing with an educated English officer, this is exactly like an Othello type situation. You're supposed to know what I'm talking about, you see? So, how can anybody who's not Jewish, even if they read a little bit of Hebrew, get into all this? The answer is, of course, they cannot, or hardly any. Who has the sense, who has the competence, the linguistic, let alone the knowledge competence, to censor a Tosus? or a Mban, or a Maharal, for crying out of it, or a Chuvas Marajdam, or something like that. These are highly arcane types of text. Look, there are very few Jews who can do that. <laughs> Fewer than people would admit. Okay? So, by definition, you're going to have to have a Meshumid. But which Meshumid can read this stuff? So you see where I'm heading. By definition, you can have an ex-Yeshiva guy. True? He has to have the knowledge, and then he switched. That's what it has to be. How many of those types are there out there? Fortunately for the church, they got somebody. Uh, there was a, this pope actually found uh, Domenico Gerusalemo, Tilminiano, which means Dominic of Jerusalem. Uh, that's not his real name. His real name was Shmuel Vivas. He's from Crete, Crete, Candia. Crete was a province of the Republic of Venice, uh, if anybody remembers that. And... Uh, He's a guy from a from family. He went there to Israel to learn yeshiva in the time of Yosef Karo and Tzfas, no less. Uh, he became a Dayan at the age of 22 in, 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 in Eretz Israel, 
that's impressive today. Imagine that time. Uh, then eventually, uh, we don't know anything about him. Eventually, he goes to Egypt, becomes a doctor. I don't know how he switched from being a dying to a doctor, but in those days, you don't ask too many questions of your physicians. And uh, he gets a good reputation in Egypt as the Pasha's doctor, and eventually the Sultan Murad the Terrible over here, right? Oh, he was a vicious guy. He says, oh, I heard there's a good Jewish doctor down there. Send him to me. He becomes the doctor of the Sultan. Uh, interesting uh, career for ex Shiva guy. And while he's there for 10 years or so in the court, we don't know all the details. Obviously, some missionary gets him. That's what happened. Was it a boy? Was it a girl? Was it a Jesuit? I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful question. Sad question. But next thing you know, he gives up his job as the Sultan's physician. Um, and he uh, runs away to Italy, and then becomes a Catholic. A, a Catholic. You know what I'm um, once he comes over there, so the church says, oh, you're exactly what we're looking for. We're about to set up this new censorship apparatus, and we need a guy with your background, of which there are not that many, because let's face it, ain't too many Diana from Yosef Kairos Basin, or whatever, uh, interested in moving to Italy becoming a Catholic. And so the bottom line is, he becomes the number one expert for the Catholic Church. He lived to 1621, so he was there for a while. He says that he went through 20,000 Jewish books and manuscripts uh, to review for them. So obviously he was the man, think about that. He, he was the man that they sent everything to. And uh, not only that, but very, very much in the style of the, uh, of the Catholic uh, bureaucracy, of the, he actually published a book, a classic book on um, censorship, giving directions for other people to use that they won't have his kind of knowledge. And it's a very famous book called Sefer Azikuk, right? Lezakek in Old Hebrew means to purify through fire, to purge. This is therefore the equivalent of the Latin index expurgatorius. Right? Is that the next one we have there? Yeah. I was, I was looking for the picture. It doesn't matter. But the index is, uh, was around until uh, recently, and still, if you're a real from Catholic, you still keep it. They have a list of books you're allowed to read, a list of books you're not. They have a list of books that they have to remove chapter 7, you know, or things like this, in order to get what the church calls, uh, the stamp from the church which says, imprimatur, let it be printed. Uh, many of you heard that word anyway, to get an imprimatur. And that's what he does. He has a whole thing over here where he writes, for the benefit of people who don't have his education, Klolim Rashim Lesefer Azikuk. I'll read you a, a, a small handful of them. And he's no dummy. Uh, he says over here, you want to let him, if we let a Hebrew book or manuscript be published, anytime he says the word goy, and it doesn't mean, by its context, ancient goyim, put in the word akum. Right? So that it will mean that. So the, I'll just give you one example. The Talmud has a Masechta called Avodah Zarah. If you want to get down to the un, uncensored version of it, a lot of it has to do with Christianity. No, it doesn't. Not, you can't tell nowadays. Because every time it says the word notes for your guy, put in the word Akum. Akum means Ove Kachamazos, idol worshippers, which obviously don't apply as they saw it to the Christians. Little did they know the Christian Jews apply it anyway. But, they, the, uh, but at least the text looks like ancient idolaters. And therefore, that's what you have to always switch for. Um, if it's clear from the context that they're talking about somebody B.C., before Jesus, then you can leave it in. Here's another one. Anytime it mentions the word uh, uh, idol or a statue or something like that, be sure that it, it, it sticks in the word 
in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, in the Tosos, whatever it is, Akum. So even though the actual Gemara text may say uh, Hatzlamim, the idols, it has to say Hatzlamim Shel Akum. You understand? Notice these are physical guidelines on the sensors to the printers. I mean, the guys putting together the building, the, the printing letters in Basel and in, in Brussels and in, in, in Prague and Vienna, wherever, in Milan and Venice, every time you see Hebrew manuscript given to you, do this to it. Uh, anytime it says the word Tzura in it, a form. Uh, every time it says the word Min, erase it, because it all means uh, Christians. Now that's exact, to be perfectly honest, that's not exactly true, but it's true enough at the time that this guy decided, and welcome now, I'm introducing you to a new reality. These are the bosses of the, of the swarm. You can't get anything published without their okay. So it doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not, or if they're stupid or not, that you, you, you have to play the game. You have no choice. This is what I mean by the title of my talk today, in which the Jews are going to have to learn to accommodate themselves, because that's what they have to do from 1600 to 1900, and maybe even afterwards, uh, to the reality that I don't give who you, Ramosha Feinstein or something like this, or whoever living 100 years, or on a specter, you better write in such a way that the guy will let it pass. Um, because if you don't, he'll just mangle the manuscript anyway. You don't get to have the final say on what actually gets published. You get what I'm saying? I mean, you could be the note of Yehuda. It doesn't matter what you say. It's what the censor gives the directions to the people who put the type together. That's what's going to happen over there. Um, anytime mentions a certain nation, you know, right there, the word Akum, uh, he says over Anytime you find in the Talmud or any kind of book something that says, oh, Am Yisrael is great because we don't do this or that, and it's clearly implying that the other Gentiles do this or that. I'll just give you one example. If it will say somewhere in rabbinic text, we don't uh, eat our God, uh, erase the whole thing. Because even though they didn't say anything about the Catholics, it's clearly implied. You see? And there's, I mean, there's pages of this. That's why I can't read you the whole business. Uh, I had to go and find the book. It's not so common, but it's always published in Avram Kahana's uh, Sifruta Historia Israeli. There was a famous Moscow 100 years ago, Avram Kahana, who put together in two volumes, really, it's magnificent, very tightly packed uh, uh, text, all the classic, all the classic uh, Jewish history texts from long ago. And this is one of them, whether we like it or not. And this is written by a Jew. Not our kind of Jew, but it's written by a Jew. And he's using his yeshiva knowledge, so to speak, uh, to get this across. So you understand, if you're a Catholic censor somewhere else, you have this as your handbook. And it's your index expurgatorius. It's the uh, guide to tell you what to do there. Now, as a result, there's a lot of famous, funny, and stupid things that happen over the ages. For example, I mean, this is very uh, famous, uh, you can't have the word goy, so therefore you have the word akum. So you have in the Siddur that's published in Germany in the 1600s, You understand? Which is goy echad barats, means the Jewish people are a singular nation. The word goy may refer to the Jewish people. The word goy also means a nation, a people. It doesn't only mean Gentiles, it depends on the context. Not if you're a censor and you're just applying the rules mechanically. You see? Or uh, when you find in a text of the mission it refers to the Dalad Minim, which of course means the Lula of the Esther Gadas and Ravas, and the Ogamar is the Dalad Akum. You see? And th- this is what the price of doing 
are doing business in those days. And uh, it's kind of sad, it's kind of funny, but it is what it is. Uh, for the next 300 years ago, or so, as I said, any author who wanted to publish something in a Catholic country had to go through this process without exception. Uh, the censors are almost always renegade Jews or Christian Hebraists. Uh, they actually got better treatment from the Christian Hebraists. You understand? In other words, if they would have someone who was a born Christian who learned enough Hebrew to operate in this way. Remember, his salary is paid by the Jewish community. It has to be. That's the rules. So... That might be somebody after a while, you'll deal with this rabbi, you deal with that rabbi. Depends on your nature, but you might be a person and get a little bit of milk of human kindness. Uh, we know there was a famous guy, for example, in Prague in the time of Nodi Behuda, and for 50 years, Carol Fisher. They just wrote a very fine article about him, Car Charles Fisher, Car Carlos Fisher. And he was 100% Christian, this guy made a living, he had a family and all the rest of it. He, I don't know where he learned uh, Hebrew, in, in, in college somewhere. And... Uh, the note of Yehuda made it his business to be friendly with the guy, and the guy after him, the Chuba Meava, Lezer Flecos, was very friendly with him and other Jewish authors. And as a result, you know, plenty of Jewish books were published in Prague. You could be darn sure that they never said anything that could be taken objectionably. Uh, what I'm really talking about is the creation of a climate in which Jewish rabbis learned pretty darn quick uh, to be very diplomatic from then on. If you want to get a book published, in a Christian country, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, except that old texts are going to be mangled. You I mean, you're not going to have a, 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 an exact kind of, um, uh, of translation, but that's not what the situation will allow. There's a famous Maskilic author, uh, Shmuel Leib Tzitron, who uh, died in 1930 or so, very fine author, uh, Hebrew author. So his books are online, actually, Tzitron. And one of his famous books he wrote was called Miachuria Pargud, Behind the curtains, stories of famous Mushamadim, Mumrim, Mushamadim, and something else. And because uh, he lived in Tsarist Russia, and in Tsarist Russia, down to the 1917, down to the fall of the Tsar, uh, every book had to go through a Christian censorship process. It's not the Catholic Church, it's the Russian Orthodox Church, but they had the exact same thing. They all used Mushamadim and Mumrim. And he wrote very interesting human uh, studies of the type of person who ends up as a Meshumad, and you know, life is what it is. It's like the foreign legion. You could end up somebody from a Hasidic family, or somebody from Volozhin, or somebody from this place or that place, and life was a that he ended up being a censor. This is a guy made a, you gotta make a living. This guy made a living as the official Christian censor of Jewish books, and he has all kind of famous stories over there. For those who are interested, there was the Brisker who wrote his own Hearas in there. Somebody learned the Brisk and then became a Catholic censor. And every time somebody wrote a Safer, he wrote his own learned comments onto it. And of course, they have to be incorporated in it. So you've got to watch out when you read a Safer published in Russia in the last 150 years. Uh, is it exactly what the original author said? Or it might have extra parts in there were put in by somebody who had already converted to Christianity. Go figure that one out. Um, he had the Chassid who uh, censored out misnagdic comments. There was a couple of famous Chassidim that they converted Christianity, they became censors over here. And if somebody wrote a book from Lithuania making fun of the Baal Shem Tov, it's like, out it goes, you understand? And go figure that out, you know, he became a Christian. But the answer, of course, is like this. People often switch religions for materialistic reasons. So if nothing necessarily personal, it's just a career move. I'm not condoning it, obviously, but I'm just saying they didn't, they didn't necessarily bring with them a super hatred for the Jews. Sometimes that happened too. I don't know if I mentioned here or not, there used to be the most famous of these guys was Daniel Chvolson, who was uh, a Rebbe in a, what do you call it, Shiva Katana in Aishishok, 
And then he switched and became a, a Catholic, a Russian Orthodox priest. He became professor of um, Bible studies or something like that in the Imperial Seminary for training Russian Orthodox priests in St. Petersburg. What you would call like today the, the top uh, religious seminary in Russia. Just think about this. And uh, it's very famous that the Jews liked him, the rabbi stayed in good contact with him because he always made sure to teach in his classes that the Alila's dam is not true, that the blood libel is incorrect, right? The Jews don't recognize Jesus, and this, you know, they have their faults, no question about it, but uh, they don't do this, and they don't do that. And there were many times, if you take the trouble to study it, where accusations were made, you know, like the fixer or something like that, that this Jew here or that one there killed a Christian kid, and he was always called for expert testimony, and he would say like this, I don't believe in Judaism, I left it myself, I went for higher pastors, and all the rest of it, but uh, this is not part of Judaism. You understand? And it's very famous that, um, the very famous story that Rabbi Yisrael Khan Inspector, the leading rabbi in Russia, by far, uh, wrote to him once, he said, we need your help in this and this issue, Leich Kilakach Nozarto, which of course, if you recognize the quote, is from uh, the story of Yehuda Nasi when he says, you know, a, a, a certain a, a little calf went to hide under him, didn't want to get shechted. And we had another so I guess, go, it is for this that you were created. But of course, notesarty can also, also mean you became a, a notary. You see, you became a Christian. So Leich, so he's writing to him, so I guess, we need your help on this in this situation. Kilakach notesarta, because it was for this reason, really Christianity. And he wrote back a famous reply, which we're all going to recite very soon on Yom Kippur, which is, Achso she notesarti kilolo notesarti. You understand? Which, again, in Hebrew is a play in words, which means like this, yeah, I became a Christian, but you know how it is, kind of make a living, but I don't really believe this stuff, and I'll help you. You see? So it all depends. Life became very strange in this particular regard, but if you're a Mechaber Swarm, I mean like the Chavetz Chaim or something like that, you understand? It's got to go through the process. It's got to go through the process. And so this became a basic part of, um, what can I tell you? The Gaulas. Uh, there are many unfunny stories of censors who were real schmoes, you understand? And you can imagine what that's like. And they would just toss something in the fire. I mean, you, you, you could get that. It, it, it is what it is, you see? And uh, this was all, the whole part of the church was to lower the Jewish uh, profile. Uh, there are times when the Jesuits would go beyond the letter of law. In Prague, in the early part of the 1700s, it's very famous that for certain political reasons, the Austrian, the Thirty Years' War, the aftermath, and all the counter-reformation, uh, the Jesuits were given complete dictatorial powers in Bohemia. Uh, for certain reasons. Well, they used it against the Jews, including that. So they made whole raids of the Jewish quarter and got all the Gemaras and put them to study, but they put them studying the bottom, they put them in the basement of a, uh, of a palace, and then the story is water got in and they all got ruined. You know, thousand Jewish volumes there, several thousand. You have to understand Prague, in the time I'm talking about 17, 17, 20, nine yeshivas, nine big shoals, a, a huge Malcolm Torah, um, it was a disaster, you understand? It, it really was main, very likely the main center at that time of Talmud studies in the world, very likely. And here you had to deal with these kind of things. The famous rabbi at that time was Yonason Abschitz. Okay? Damn. Right? I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he was a super dynamic uh, Rosh Hashiva, among other things. Um, they say, in the, I don't know if it's true, but they say in the course of his lifetime he had 20,000 students. Uh, I want you to think what that means. Because... Uh, <laughs> I always say, I guess, Rabbi Kalevsky did not have 20,000, he had plenty of students. 20,000 students over 40 years or 50 years is a gigantic number, and ordinarily I would think that it's an exaggeration, 
But as you, many of you know, his famous enemy was Yaakov Emden, who hated his guts. And Yaakov Emden, one place, said like this, I'm not impressed by your lousy 20,000 students. So sounds like it really happened. Which means you're talking about something extraordinarily charismatic. Because we're, do, we're dealing with the old days. It's not near, it's not near Israel with Yeshiva Lane with three meals a day, all the rest of it. Boys walked barefoot from wherever to go study with him. They slept on the floor if they're lucky in the shoal, and they ate a piece of bread if they're lucky. And they did it because they wanted to do it. You know what I'm saying? You don't do it, you know, nobody's telling you to be there. So it was those days. And here you have all these boys in the Gemaras aren't there. He had to go, he was very brilliant, he had to go and negotiate with the censors. They're very famous. There was a, a, a Jesuit, Hasselbauer, and uh, a well-known person in, in, in the Catholic Central European culture, and uh, Franciscus Hasselbauer. And that's who's the guy's in charge. And he had to go talk to him and debate with him Christianity and Judaism, they actually were happy that they found the rabbi knew a little bit about Christianity they could have a talk with and all the rest of it. And he had the confidence up to him and so forth in order to get the confidence of the Jesuits that they would allow him, because he said, I give you my word of honor, that he will publish an edition of the Talmud uh, which will omit not only the, uh, what shall I say, the anti-Christian passages, but will also omit any weird agados any weird stuff in there, and he said, you can rely on me that I'm going to do it. This was very controversial because they gave him permission and he did get it published. Um, I have a... It's in, it's in here, but uh, I won't take the trouble now to show. I can show people later if they, it's a little bit technical. But the point is that this, this was very controversial because it's one thing if you omit the anti-Christian stuff. Once you start saying that our stuff is weird... Uh, People were very offended by Jews were very offended by that. What do you mean our stuff was weird? You understand? And if you anything about Yonas Abshitz, he's very, very sensitive to uh, crazy sounding agados because he had to deal with this stuff every day in his interaction with the Jesuits. You understand? I'm just thinking of a very classic example. Some of you will know what I'm talking about, where the Gemara says, How did they get rid of the Eitzah Harba Vodazar? Have you ever heard of that story in the Gemara and Yuma? That they, you know, they prayed in the time of Ezra Nehemiah that. They can't handle the temptations of idolatry anymore. Uh, Judaism has a terrible history with that. And they already prayed to God, and a, and a, a paper fell down from heaven, and they gave permission, and then they looked for it, and, the, and, and the, a, a fiery lion shot out of the Kodesh Kodesh, and they grabbed the lion, and some of the hair fell out, until they finally put it in a, in a, in a soundproof box. Sounds like a crazy story. And he writes in the Yaris Devash. He's the guy we're making fun of with this all the time. And he makes it his business to interpret it in a very rationalistic manner. Because he says, I'll just share this with you as a, a tiny Dvar Torah. He says, uh, what does it mean that they abolish the Yitzhar of Odazar? Which certainly sounds like a mystical kind of story. He says, no, you look at the, at the Pirkei Avos, and uh, we're talking about the Anshay Genesegdol, because that's who Ezra is based in it, are. Uh, what is Anshay Genesegdol famous for saying? Uh, you know this. Asusiagla um, Torah, make a, a fence around the Torah, and Hamidu Talmidim Harbe, which means make, make a, a mass education campaign. My friends, when they spread in a mass way the knowledge of the Torah, not in an elite way for only a few, like you had in the Bayez Rishon. This is what he says. Uh, then they killed the Yetzirah of Avodah so to speak. No, it didn't exactly happen that way. It's just a metaphorical way of talking. And it's a very classic example. Now, my, he's a major Kabbalist. He didn't really mean this. But for public purposes, this is how you put it over. And I'm saying all this is generated by the crazy reality of having to operate in a world in which Ayvenu Plilim, our enemies are the ones who get to judge over what they allow us to print for ourselves or not. This is the way the game was, was, was played, as they say before. Um, there's a very other famous person, uh, David Oppenheimer. Is that him? Yeah. 
who was the leading rabbi in Bohemia, in Central Europe, again, early, he does loaded, multi-millionaire, uh, yichus, the whole nine yards, Torah Dul Mokamechad. I mean, he was connected with the best families, and the oldest families, and the wealthiest families. That's why he became the chief rabbi of Bohemia and all the rest of it. He's the chief rabbi of Bohemia. He resides in Prague. He's a book lover. He collects in a choice library because he can afford to do it of rare books and this and that and the other. You know, it's just magnificent. But he can't keep him in Prague because the, the, the church might grab it. And so he keeps him in Hanover, all the way in North Germany where he has relatives. Hanover, of course, is ruled by a Protestant dynasty and not a Catholic dynasty. And Protestants don't give a darn. Second of all, Protestant, the dynasty that rules Hanover, does anybody know who I'm talking about? That's Queen Elizabeth of England. Right? It's the House of Hanover. They, they call them now the House of Windsor, but they used to be the House of Hanover, the House of, you know. So they're already a little bit more liberal, you understand. They're not out to go and burn all the Hebrew books. And so he amasses a, a fantastic library, which he himself can rarely access. You know, you have to be a real book publisher to collect a library that you'll never see. <laughs> you agree with that? Eventually, I think Oxford uh, bought it later on. Uh, it's the foundation of their library, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so what I'm saying as, as we roll near the end is, that Jewish authors had to accustom themselves to self-censorship. That's the way it went. You had to say other things. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It is what it is. But you, you don't want to cause trouble when it's not necessary. And so we have a whole history of this. Azaria Figo, the famous Benelitin, we were in his shul in Venice, um, has a, a famous book on Chosha Mishma, on Jewish civil law, uh, called Gedule Truma. And you read through it, and there's a whole section that is omitted, what they call the role of Dina de Malchus Adina, how to run basins, because the Pope doesn't like Jews to do that sort of thing, and he's not even going to touch it. You see? It's not going to be published if you mention anything about that. So you just omit a whole area of Shulchan Aruch that you're not going to even touch. The Chassam Sofer is asked in the 19th century, some guy says, hey, now we can publish something called the Chesronas Ashas, which means those parts that are taken out but are preserved elsewhere, publishes a booklet, and somebody who studies the Talmud will be able to have these books and know what's missing. And the Chassam says, are you crazy? Shut up. Who asked you? Is he want to cause trouble? Just leave it alone. It's very famous. Uh, the note of Yehuda, whenever you look in his books, he's always talking about, oh, now we're suffering under the Golis Yishmael, under the Golis of Islam. He lived in Prague. <laughs> it's not Arab. He doesn't mean Golis Yishmael, but you have to say that. You understand? Whenever you see an old sefer, it always says like this. There may be some references to Goyim in this book. This have nothing to do with the nations among whom we live now. This is talking about the ancient times and it should never be taken out of context. It's strictly for historical purposes. I, so why are you talking about you know, the kosher laws and all these other sorts of things? Right? I, they know it too. But there's a form to be observed. You see? Uh, the Oh, you should see the note of Yehuda's when Maria Teresa, the empress, died, he gave her such a hesped. Uh, believe me, the biggest gadol doesn't get a hesped like this. And she was a big mershas. She was a terrible anti-Semite. Although you'd never know it. You'd never know it. Because he was not stupid. He was very smart. And he said like this. Uh, this is the price of doing business in, in Prague. You know, so the Jews want to live here. They want to have security. This is what you got to do. The Ur HaShulchan in the 19th and early 20th century is still, that's late, is living in the Tsarist Russia. Again, he omits entire sections of the Shulchan Aruch of his commentary, because he says, now we live under the enlightened Tsarist times with wonderful rulers, and all these kind of rules don't apply anymore. Because he's got to get his book published, even though he's a renowned, world-famous rabbi, he's got to get his book published through the system as well. Uh, the Tsarist reality has its own story 
because you can imagine how the Jews felt about the different czars of Russia, Hatsar, Hatsurer, over there, ones that were grabbing the kids for 25 years in the Cantonists and all those and then you have to make a Mishabar for them every Shabbos and all the rest of it. My favorite story, I wrote it many years ago, there was a famous a Jewish preacher, Magid Maslansky, and he ended up coming to a certain town <laughs> uh, when Alexander III, this guy, who was a Russia Marusha, hated the Jews, it was terrible. And the police minister in the town said, I guess, oh, you're a famous speaker. You have to give a hesped for the czar. So he said, oh, you got to, you got to. So they called all the Jews together in the shul, and he gets up there, and he says like this. <laughs> we all know what a wonderful guy Alexander III was. We all know how much he cared for us. Now he's in Shemayim getting his reward. Rabbi Shalom, give him everything he deserves. <laughs> and the police commissioner said like this. That was better than the priest. You did a fantastic job. But this is, no, but I'm saying, it's funny and it's not funny. You understand? This is, this is what you have to do. Um, and that's why, incidentally, uh, the prayer for the ruler, like you have in the old synagogue for this guy, this Khaleria, the prayer for the ruler uh, was forced. They didn't want to do it. And that's why it's not popular in Haredi circles of Eastern European Providence, Eastern European Providence. You understand? They come to America. When I grew up, I never went to a shoal where they say prayer for a country. Now I see it's come back in big spades. It's part of the Americanization process. But people like this. Back in the old country, you had to say for the czar, you didn't mean it. Now in America, being free means you don't have to say anything at all. That's even better. Because they associate it with insincerity. You understand? It's with insincerity. Uh, I understand. It's not, elsewhere, it's not like that. I was in Gibraltar last year. And, oh my God, they said prayer for the Queen of England. And they, meant, and they did mean it. And the guy came over to me. And he said, Rabbi, you have to be here in a few years. Because it's going to be 300 years under British crown of complete religious freedom. Which is true. So I can understand that they would be very loyal to England. I have no problem with that. But that's not the experience of Eastern Europe. You think Queen Elizabeth ate the same thing as Tsar Nicholas. And uh, you end up all these sorts of things. Uh, it's the famous story of Franz Josef, who the Jews did like. I've said this story many times. When World War I broke out, uh, he, he was very good to the Jews. When World War I broke out, a bunch of rabbis went to Franz Josef in Vienna and they said, I guess, we are praying that you should win the war. And, and Franz Josef was 85 at the time. He said, I guess... You know and I know, at this very moment, in St. Petersburg, there's a whole group of Russian rabbis that have been coming for Tsar Nicholas, and they're saying, we're praying that you should win the war. And I forget, it's the rabbi of uh, Budapest, a couple of rights, he's talking yeah, but you know we mean it. With us, <laughs> 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 you know, we really mean it. So, you end up with this kind of a basic line, until it really switches in the terrible 20th century, and you get somebody called Hitler, and Hitler says, like, save the books, burn the Jews. Rabbi Oshri, and I know many of you remember him, was survived, uh, I mean, Mamaki was in New York, survived the Covenant Ghetto because the Germans said, we need somebody who can read all these books and classify them for us. So when the Jews are gone, we'll have a library of Jewish books without the Jews. And it'll be like reading the ancient uh, you know, uh, Hittite uh, stuff like that. It'll be interesting for archaeology. That's already a new day. And it's also true, you get people, uh, I would say in general, the modern secular state in this regard is the is often the uh, successor of the Roman Catholic Church. Because in America, you have a tradition of Jeffersonianism and therefore freedom of the press. But in other countries, you don't have that. And the modern secular state, I'll give an example, Russia, you know, places like that. Most of the countries in the world today, you do not have freedom of the press. You understand? If, uh, if, if Jews or anybody else would say something, they'll kill you. Uh, it was interesting. I looked up to the internet. Stalin burned a whole bunch of Gemaras in Birabijan in the 1930s, because if you never heard of Beer Jean, there's a good reason. It's all the way in the back of Siberia. And he said, I guess, oh, the Jews want Palestine? I'll give them a Palestine. 
it's past Gehenim, you know. <laughs> and somebody had a Gemara there, and he said, "Oh, he's going to destroy it." He said, "Very." Put him in a in a long line of uh, nice guys. Uh, not that long ago, in the 1950s. Uh, does anybody remember Rabbi Levin from Moscow? What was it like to be a rabbi in Soviet Russia? Now, some of them were spies and traitors. So I'm not talking about that. But Rabbi Hudalib Levin was the son-in-law of one before him, which was Rabbi Schleifer, I think, or something, who was the son-in-law of Rabbi Reinus, the founder of Mizrahi. And uh, he, he had it hard. You understand that? And I remember reading long ago that the Soviets went to him and he said, all the Sidurma falling out. He said, we'll let you print any new Siddur you want. You just have to omit the objectionable stuff. He said, then forget it. He said, that takes a lot of guts because they want to take out anything Zionist. You take anything Zionist out of Siddur, like Serzeno and Nenim, you don't have a Siddur left. And he wasn't willing to go there. You see, he said, I'd rather have no Siddur. It's, it's, this, it sounds like the 1560s and it was the 1960s. You know, it's, a, it's not so far-fetched as we imagine. Even in this country, yeah, there was a famous case of Anthony Comstock. He was the one-man anti-vice uh, committee. He, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. He ran around the eight, late 18, early 1900s going after anybody who was in pornography and objectionable things, anti-Christian, all the rest of it. I forget, you know, well, what's her name? For, or the city councilman, uh, Ricky Spector, showed me once from her grandfather or something like that. Something in Yiddish, a trial with I couldn't understand at the time, a trial of the Talmud by Anthony Comstock, where somebody must have had something objectionable in there and want to get it banned. Of course, it didn't work in the state of New York, but nevertheless, even in the United States of America, such things are, are possible. Um, the Arabs and the Islamists today are of the opinion burn the books and burn the Jews. So we haven't progressed that much. Uh, the art scroll phenomenon that we're all living through is not so pushy. Do you agree? It's putting all the stuff out there. Discretion is still advisable. I keep in my house, that's where I said a letter was written to me many long years ago by Rabbi Goldworm Al-Basham when I was working on the uh, Gemaras. And there was a pay- case over there where the word minim is implied. And I wrote in there, very scholarly, there's a minim reference over here, Rabbi Gamli, on the early Christians. And he said, leave that out. I don't want this used by some future Pablo Christiani. And, when, and I thought at that time, he's crazy. I'll leave it out, but you know, that's off the wall. I don't think that today. You understand? I don't think that today. Uh, I think I mentioned to you before, I googled myself once and it first comes up on the Nazi websites. Because since I did Perichelic for the art school, anything in there that's objectionable, uh, oh, they know about it. They, they, they read all the stuff in English, which they couldn't do if it wasn't for art school or Sansino. It's not so simple. It's a double-edged sword. You understand? It is a double-edged sword. Don't, don't, don't fool yourself. Discretion is still advisable, especially with the modern YouTube stuff. You can get anything and instantly put it all over the place. It's very, very scary. Ultimately, we're dealing with a phenomenon that reminds me more than anything else of what Abdessa wrote long ago about Yaakov bowing down to Esau, as we all know the story, which he said Yaakov had to bow down to Esau because of the circumstances, but he didn't mean it. And that's the fate of the Jews. You know, sometimes we have to bow down to circumstances and submit to censorship and all those other things or leave things out. I don't mean it, but that's part of the way the game is played. Because uh, we're still not holding, at, as they say, but I want to conclude on a happier note, uh, and a funnier note, let's put it this way, and I found a wonderful thing on the YouTube I'm going to share with you right now, a uh, three and a half minute piece of Lubavitch Rebbe. They photographed everything before we run it. Who do I have over there? Oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> that's not the Lubavitch right. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll no, I t- I tell, tell you why I put them up there. I must have my wrong seven notes here. I'll tell you why I put them up there. People like him were the soul of discretion. If you ever read any of his forum, he is so careful on every word he says. 
You understand? I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to read, uh, whether it's a public document or a safer or something like that. This was the Eastern European ghetto. They grew up in a society, in a situation where they were very, very conscious, as we are not. We grew up in free America, and therefore we're a little too loose, loose with our mouths. They grew up in a different circumstance, and they say like this, it's tough enough being Jewish, don't make it worse. Chachamim hizor b'divrechem. I'm not 100% sure we, we, we do this today. In fact, I'm sure we do not. Okay, especially in Israel. I totally understand that people in Israel feel it's all Jewish society, all the rest of it, but others are looking. It is what it is. Um, the Babich obviously videoed every guy that came to Rebbe for a dollar. So, I mean, like, you know, like, like the KGB. And there's a guy here, you're going to see in a second. This is a little bit of Jewish. It's not book burning, but it's interesting. Uh, it's, uh, I, because it, it's in Hebrew, I mean, it's in English, but with Hebrew subtitles. So I'll just explain it to you, and then you'll see it takes three and a half minutes. This guy, this, this is what you call chutzpah. The guy goes to the Bible Rebbe and says, I guess, I'm a Jew, I converted to Catholic, I want to share the good news. So see, when I wrote a book, I want to give it to the Rebbe. Right? And the Bible Rebbe basically saying like this, uh, once you're Jewish, you can't switch. The guy said, no, but I feel great over here, and I want to give you the book. And the Bible Rebbe says, I'll take the book. The reason I'm taking the book is you have one less to give to others. <laughs> And at the end, you'll see toss it in the waste paper basket when he leaves, which I think is the only amusing way to end this uh, rather remarkable story, which unfortunately, my friends, is not over, as I just indicated to you. It's the 21st century, but the past ain't over yet. Take it away. I'm from a Jewish family that has become a Christian at the age of 29. And uh, I feel my mission because I believe I'm Catholic today. That I come because I love very much my people. And I do this book so that all the Catholics can know the roots, where they come from, that you know. But if someone was born a Jew, he is a Jew for all of his life. Yes, I know. And he cannot change it. It can make only his life more complicated. So my life is much more miserable. My life is much miserable. If someone is thinking about his illness, that that is a healthy thing, that is only a sign that his illness is more possible and needs a refuel, a gerizon, a, 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 a treatment as soon as possible. Pray for me, but I am very glad because for me Jesus Christ is here, Messiah. Yeah, as I said before, if you are thinking about yourself as a healthy person, it's just the only sign that you are more ill than someone is thinking about you. So I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am not speaking. The most, uh, I am speaking about you. Chief. Uh, uh, about you and uh, seeing the biggest thing to change uh, apparently your being Jewish. But my parents were uh, never brought into the synagogue, never. That, that is not an excuse for someone to be held to be ill because his parents won't do so. You understand what I mean, Steve? I understand you. Thank you. bless you that you became healthy. It's amazing to become a Jew openly and to reclaim for all the people around you that it was a big error that God Almighty has so much mercy and He is forgiving even for the biggest 
she's a candy dog. Rabbi, pray for me. As, for I, as I said before, that's the only sign that your illness is much deeper than you imagine and I imagine. And God Almighty bless you to have good news and don't enter, the people don't enter in discussion about what you are. You are born a Jew. I'm always a Jew. And there will be a Jew and the Jew openly and all see all person around you, especially you. Family, you are claiming your strength to, to claim that some, someone that performed a big sin Nevertheless, he has the God Almighty strength to recover from his big illness, and as soon as you do it, as soon as Mashiach will come. The real Mashiach. Can I give you the book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. That will prevent you to give it to someone else, and then give someone else to do something wrong. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.